Hello, my name is Yuval Shani. I'm a law professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. My talk today will focus on the question of the effectiveness of international courts, a goal-based approach. During the last 20 years, the world has experienced a, sh a sharp rise in the number of international courts and tribunals and a correlative expansion of the jurisdictions. There is little question that these occurrences have dramatically affected and will continue to affect the fields of both international law and international relations. At the international level, the creation and operation of judicial bodies, which are capable of enforcing international commitments, interpreting international treaties, and settling international conflicts, has facilitated the growth of legal norms and cooperative regimes, which nowadays govern important areas of international law and politics, such as economic relations, human rights, and armed conflicts. International courts have thus become important actors, as well as policy instruments in the hands of international lawmakers. They serve in some respects as the linchpin of a new rule-based international order, which increasingly, increasingly displaces or purports to displace the previous power-based international order. The increased centrality of international courts in international life invites, however, a critical assessment of their performance. Are international courts effective tools for international governance? Do they, in fact, fulfill the expectations that have led to their creation and empowerment? Do they, by way of example, improve compliance with international norms? Why do some courts appear to be more effective than others? Could results of equal value as those produced by international courts have been generated by other less costly or time-consuming mechanisms? A growing body of legal literature has turned its attention to just such questions of effectiveness in recent years. Still, a significant portion of this literature possesses an Achilles heel in the crude and or intuitive definitions of effectiveness that they employ which often equate effectiveness with compliance, with court judgments, or, and or with usage rates. Yet complicated links exist between compliance with judicial decisions and effectiveness. Judgment compliance rates may depend as much as, as on the nature of the remedies issued by a court as on the perceived quality of the court's organs or procedures. Thus, a low-aiming court, which issues minimalist remedies, may generate high levels of compliance yet have a little impact on the state of the world. In addition, judgment compliance rates fail to capture the impact of out-of-court settlements conducted under the court's shadow. In the same vein, usage rates are also a poor proxy for judicial effectiveness. Limited resort to adjudication may be indicative of the perceived uselessness of the court in question, thus perceived lack of effectiveness, or of its long shadow, which prods the disputing parties towards out-of-court settlements and dispute avoidance, thus perceived effectiveness. Similarly, high rates of adjudication can be equally explained by the attractiveness of the judicial forum or by its inability to introduce legal standards and predictability. Although evaluation of state compliance and compliance by other relevant actors with legal norms enforced by international courts may be a more appropriate approach to understanding judicial effectiveness, such an approach may be at the same time both too broad and too narrow. It may be too broad in the sense that it does not provide us with precise tools for understanding and evaluating the effectiveness of specific strategies through which courts can promote no compliance. For example, through generating ex-ante deterrence, issuing exposed remedies, dissemination of information on practices, elucidation of legal standards, etc. Furthermore, from a methodological point of view, isolating the contribution of judicial processes to manifestations of compliance, in particular in cases involving long-term or strategic habits of compliance, could be extremely challenging. 
As a result, assessing judicial effectiveness only on the basis of non-compliance rates may provide us with limited guidance as to what makes international courts effective and to what extent they are in fact effective. An excessive focus on non-compliance may also be too narrow since it may overlook the significance of other factor, uh, functions assumed by international courts which may go beyond promoting compliance. For example, dispute resolution may at times involve legal settlements that deviate from existing law in order to accommodate the interests of the disputing parties or to push forward a normative agenda. Furthermore, international courts may make an important contribution to the field of international law and to international institutions through their norm interpretation and norm development activities. Insisting on compliance with the legal status quo ex ante as the sole touchstone of effectiveness may thus fail to capture a court's dispute settling, law interpreting, or law developing role. The combination of an underdeveloped understanding in some of the existing literature as to what ought to constitute effective international adjudication and the theoretical and methodological difficulties associated with actually measuring the adopted criteria may lead to unsatisfying results and to misunderstandings about the effectiveness of international courts. As a result, a richer understanding of the concept of international court effectiveness, which exceeds the notion of compliance inducement, is warranted, and a more sophisticated methodology should be developed. Fortunately, other academic disciplines may assist us in developing adequate concepts and methods for international law. In particular, one may find within the, body, within the social science literature a vast body of studies dealing with how to assess the effectiveness of organizations in general and public or governmental organizations in particular. Such literature is normally classified in sociology under organizational studies or public administration studies. This literature appears to provide a number of conceptual frameworks and empirical indicators that could be applied in assessing the effectiveness of international courts and tribunals, which may be regarded like domestic courts as public organizations. Such an act of intellectual borrowing may enrich the existing discourse on the effectiveness of international courts and provide us with new tools to measure effectiveness, as well as to improve our understanding of the methodological limits of such an exercise. The present lecture will survey some key notions used in the social science literature relating to the methodology for measuring the effectiveness of public organizations and discuss their possible application to international courts. In doing so, I hope to contribute to the establishment of a more sophisticated analytical framework for discussing international court effectiveness than the ones which have been offered in some of the existing international literature and to throw a new light on some basic concepts relating to international adjudication. I will first discuss the goal-based definition of effectiveness and explain how it could apply to international courts. I will then survey a number of ways to classify goals and illustrate some of the difficulties and ambiguities that measuring effectiveness on the basis of goal attainment may nonetheless entail. Subsequently, I will try to identify some of the generic goals of international courts and discuss how a goal-based model for evaluating international court effectiveness could help us rethink some basic concepts in international adjudication. To be clear, I will not attempt hereby to offer any conclusions as to whether international court in general or any specific international court in particular are effective. My main interest in this lecture is rather to present a research agenda that could advance an interdisciplinary approach towards studying international court effectiveness. The proposed framework could lay the foundations for future analytical and empirical work that would be more specific in its focus, that is focusing on the specific goals of a specific court. Indeed, I currently coordinate a number of specific research projects conducted by younger researchers that seek to apply in specific contexts the general framework proposal. I will first address the question of what constitutes organizational effectiveness. 
A key conceptual hurdle that any research into organizational effectiveness has to address is what constitutes an effective organization, or in other words, what does one consi- consider organizational effectiveness to be? Although some argue that there are as many models of effectiveness as there are studies of organizational effectiveness, the dominant definition of effectiveness in the social science literature appears to be based on the rational system approach, which offers a rather straightforward formulation. An action action is effective if it accomplishes its specific objective aim. Of course, satisfaction of this performance-based standard has to be assessed over predefined units of time. Consequently, in order to measure the effectiveness of an organization according to the rational system approach, one has to identify the organization's aims or goals, that is, the desired outcomes it ought to generate, and ascertain the time frame over which some or all of these goals can reasonably be expected to be met. Significantly, under the rational system approach, the desirability of the goals themselves is not questioned, though the capacity to attain them can be doubted. Hence, the project of assessing effectiveness pursuant to this approach is, like many other projects in sociology, predominantly descriptive and analytical. Still, the underlying premise of this rational system approach, that is, that organizations need to meet their goals and faithfully execute their mandates, contains an implicit normative statement about the desirability of organizational conduct and, for our purposes, about the proper manner in which international courts should conduct their business. Since the rational system approach, which I propose to apply to the study of international courts, is goal-based, it is critical to understand what types of organizational goals and goal-setters can serve or create the relevant yardsticks for an effectiveness analysis. I propose to distinguish between different judicial goals on the basis of their source, level of abstraction, and form of articulation. Source, namely whether the goals are set by an external constituency, in our case states or international organizations, or are internal in nature in the sense that they have been laid down by actors belonging to to the organization itself, in our case judges or other international court officials. Second, level of abstraction. Certain goals represent an ultimate end in themselves, whereas other goals are merely strategic or intermediate in nature. They are conducive to the attainment of the overarching purposes of the court in question. And three, form of articulation. Some goals are explicitly identified in the court's constitutive instruments or in other statements promulgated by the organization or member states. Other goals can be implicitly deduced from the said instruments, and yet another set of goals may have been embraced in an unstated unstated manner by the organization in question or the member states independently of any formal text. Like many other public organizations, international courts have a plethora of goals reflecting the expectations of different external and internal constituencies and formulating in varying levels of abstraction and explicitness. In my work, I focus on one normative baseline, that is the goals set by the mandate providers, international institutions and or states that create international courts and support and oversee their operations. True, courts sometimes formulate their own conceptions of goals, development that may be caused in part by the slow and cumbersome process of reformulating the court's external goals, especially through the explicit amendment of their constitutive instruments. The long reaction time characterizing the mandate provider's response to change may push courts to take matters into their own hands when faced with new conditions or opportunities. Still, at some point in time, which may be hard to detect, the mandate providers may catch up and explicitly endorse the court's self-identified goals as their own or at least accept such goals by way of acquiescence. 
Much of the attraction in the proposed goal-based approach to the study of effectiveness of international courts lies in its simplicity and in the strength of the normative arguments to support it. Yet it must be acknowledged that the picture of institutional performance painted by the study of goal-based effectiveness is only a partial one. It fails to capture unintended or unexpected results generated by international courts. Furthermore, it might be oblivious to the costs invested in attaining the intended or expected goals. These issues are however critical to a full understanding of judicial conduct and performance assessment. A comprehensive approach to assessing court effectiveness, especially in the context of research projects geared, geared towards facilitating organizational reforms, should arguably take into account the unforeseen or underestimated consequences of judicial operations, as well as the cost of goal attainment. Therefore, a goal-based effectiveness study should be complemented by examination of judicial efficiency or inefficiency, that is, the costs and benefit accruing out of judicial performance independently of the court's goals. That is, a court may be effective in the sense that it fulfills all of its goals, yet may be inefficient in the sense of generating considerable costs and negative externalities that may offset any benefits associated with goal attainment. At the same time, a court may fail to meet its designated goals and be ineffective whilst nevertheless creating unforeseen or unintended benefits that compensate for its apparent failures, acting efficiently. In the same vein, one may also measure the cost-effectiveness of the court in, in question, that is, the relationship between inputs and outputs in order to form an opinion on its relative effectiveness and efficiency. Another taxonomy found in the social sciences literature dealing with organizational effectiveness, which may be useful in analyzing and evaluating international court effectiveness, involves the utilization of, of operational categories to describe three aspects of the organization and its activities, structure or input, process, and outcome. According to the rational system approach, an examination of effectiveness can consider whether the tangible and intangible resources or assets available to the organization actually enable it to meet its goal, that is structure, whether the organizational processes facilitate the aim of the organization, this is process, and whether the outputs and their social effects are consistent with the organizational goals, these are the outcomes. Although only the third set of questions dealing with outcomes is directly relevant to evaluating whether an international court actually meets its goals, or in other words, functions as an effective court, measuring the outcomes produced by public organizations such as international courts may be extremely difficult, some say impossible. This is because the goals of public organizations tend to be ambiguous in nature and the public goods they generate are hard to quantify. The performance of public organizations also tends to be more dependent on their external environment than private corporations, thus further complicating a cause and effect analysis and calculations of efficiency. A better understanding of structure and process can therefore help us in the form of reverse engineering in assessing the feasibility of effective outcomes. For example, an international criminal court lacking an outreach department or conducting minimal outreach activities is unlikely to facilitate the changes in public opinion necessary to effectively realize its reconciliation mandate, or a court such as the European Court of Justice, authorized to issue preliminary rulings at the request of national courts, is likely to achieve a greater degree of embeddedness of the law it applies in domestic legal settings than courts that do not have such avenues for judicial dialogue. Moreover, exploring structures and processes may help us in diagnosing problems which explain what ostensibly appears to be suboptimal performance on the part of the evaluated judicial institutions. 
Evaluation of the organization's structure, process, and outcomes is to facilitate, facilitate by specific quantitative and qualitative indicators that serve as proxies for measuring organizational effectiveness. The number of potential, potential indicators is, however, very high. A recent meta-analysis looking into the methodology applied in studies assessing the effectiveness of public organizations found no less than 874 possible dependent variables, which the researchers categorize as relating to different operational categories, structure, process, or outcome. While many, if not most, of the indicators identified by these researchers would be of little use to a research project focusing exclusively on international courts, some indicators used to uh, assess the effectiveness of domestic courts may nonetheless be of considerable relevance to the research project uh, looking into international court effectiveness. I will now move on to discuss the goals, the actual goals of international courts. A comprehensive mapping of the goals of all international courts far exceeds the, ambition of the ambitions of the present lecture. In fact, one of the significant contributions of a goal-based approach to the study of judicial effectiveness is to clarify that goal identification is necessarily a meticulous, institution-specific endeavor based on the goals designated by a specific set of mandate providers as modified over time. As a result, one cannot seriously speak of one-size-fits-all goals and certainly not of the overall effectiveness of international courts in general. Still, initial mapping exercises conducted by the researchers with whom I work and myself suggest that some ultimate ends, that is, goals specified at a high level of abstraction, may be common to most, if not all, international courts. The existence of some degree of goal commonality should not come to us as a surprise, as the very choice to establish a court invokes certain fixed ideas as to what constitutes proper judicial structures, procedures, and functions leading to, uh, to common outcomes. Thus, for example, all courts are manned by more or less independent judges, receive legal pleadings from parties, and are expected to resolve disputes over the interpretation of legal texts, the relevant facts, and the application of the law to those facts. Institutions lacking these features may not be deemed as courts, and or may not produce the valuable outcomes which courts typically generate. Another reason for the existence of some similarities in goal definitions is the development of international adjudication through a process of replication and adaptation. For example, the European Court of Human Rights has been modeled to some extent after the International Court of Justice. The Inter-American Inter Court for Human Rights and the African Court of Human and People's Rights have been modeled more or less after the European Court of Human Rights. The various regional integration courts have been largely modeled after the European Court of Justice and the ICC and the ICTR have been modeled after the ICTY, which in turn was modeled on the International Military, Military Tribunal in Nuremberg. These historical connections between courts necessarily guarantee some degree of goal emulation across judicial institutions as well. The following are the four generic goals, ultimate ends really, that all or almost all international courts have been expected by their mandate providers to attain. First, promoting compliance with the governing international norms that is, primary norm compliance. Most international courts have been constituted in the context of a specific interstate treaty whose norms they were required to interpret and apply. Thus, courts are often, often serve as institutional supports for the normative densification of international relations in certain areas of international law and the inevitable logic of investing international courts with a core of law interpretation and law application functions has been First, to strengthen the credibility of the member states' treaty undertakings by raising the prospects of subsequent compliance 
through judicial conduct monitoring, judicial violation identification, and the issuance of demands by courts for a return to compliance and or the adoption of other corrective measures. And secondly, strengthening the compliance pool of the norms in question through having courts generate information on the contents of the applicable norms and adapt existing, existing norms to changing or unforeseen circumstances. At a more general level, international courts such as the PCIJ and the ICJ have been created as part of uh, an ideology-driven attempt to strengthen the rule of law in international affairs. The second core function of international, or the second core ultimate end of international courts has been to resolve dispute, international dispute and specific problems, that is dispute resolution or problem solving. International courts are also expected besides supporting international norms to help resolve specific disputes and problems whose prolongation of, or exacerbation may harm international relations, cooperative structures, and peaceful coexistence. This appears to have been the original impetus behind the creation of international courts from the PCAJ onwards. The third ultimate end uh, common to all or almost all international courts and tribunals has been the contribution to the operation of related institutional uh, normative regimes, that is, regime support. Most international courts operate within the framework of a specific regime, such as the European Union, the World Trade Organization, or the Council of Europe. And institutional relationships of this kind are crucial to a full understanding of these courts' goals. Arguably, regime courts have a unique inbuilt bias and may be expected, like other regime norms and institutions, to contribute to attaining the goals of the overarching regime in which they operate. At a high degree of abstraction, may, one may claim that at least some mandate providers expect international courts to support in their operation the general regime of international law, that is, the general international legal system, and that the latter's systematic welfare, systemic welfare should therefore be a matter of concern for international courts. And the fourth ultimate end, we, ultimate end we identified has been the legitimization of associated international norms and institutions. International courts, like their national counterparts, are expected to confer legitimacy on the social institutions or political system that established them and to partake in the advancement of the rule of law in international relations. Although such generic world, uh, goals typically remain unstated, one may consider them to be the raison d'etre for creating international courts to begin with and or preferring judicial avenues to other institutional avenues for addressing certain policy problems. Beyond these generic goals, international courts are also expected to attain numerous specific goals which may give meaning to the common ultimate ends or go beyond their scope. Such goals may be idiosyncratic in nature, tailored to the needs of a specific set of mandate providers or applicable to a family of international courts whose establishment res responds to the needs of similarly situated mandate providers, for example, human rights courts, economic integration courts, or international criminal courts. Thus, for example, the EFTA court takes on, its, uh, on itself the unique role of harmonizing EEA law, that is the law of the European Economic Area, with EU, EU law, that is the law of the European Union. The WTO dispute settlement system was created in order to discourage unilateralism in trade law. And the goals of international criminal courts tend to encompass political aims such as promoting peace and security, reconciliation, or stability. In all events, different courts may prioritize different goals and note that even a single court may prioritize in different aspects of its operations or in different 
periods of its operations, some goals over the others. Hence, only a contextualized court-specific analysis can provide us with a comprehensive, though necessarily less transposable across judicial institutions, evaluation of the actual performance of international courts. I will move on to discuss how one goes about measuring uh, judicial outcomes and, as a result, judicial effectiveness. The key to assessing the effectiveness of international courts according to the rational system or goal-based approach involves evaluation of judicial outcomes. While some outputs generated by international courts are relatively easy to capture, for example, the number of decisions issued by courts within a given time frame, others raise more complicated evaluation problems, such as the development of a coherent jurisprudence. In any event, one should be careful to distinguish between outputs, that is, the direct products of the court's operations, such as decisions or speeches or legal briefs, and outcomes, that is, the impacts of such outputs on the external state of the world. While measuring outputs may assist us in evaluating outcomes, application of a goal-based approach to the study of international court effectiveness requires us to juxtapose goals or desired ends and outcomes, thus actual ends, not outputs. In other words, outputs are mere instruments to, uh, or means to attain social outcomes and thus represent a less important object of study than outcomes. Quantifying certain intangible outcomes, such as the normative impact of international courts on the internal laws and practices of the state parties, the court's normative contribution to a specific legal regime or to general international law, increased deterrence, strengthening compliance with international norms, harmonizing different legal regimes, or promoting social processes such as national reconciliation could be extremely difficult. Whether such changes in the state of the world have actually occurred may be very hard to capture and almost impossible to quantify. Moreover, since these changes take place in the context of complicated political and legal environments, isolating the contribution of the court towards their occurrence or in other words, identifying an exact change of causation may be difficult to ascertain, although methods, methods of process tracing may go some way towards identifying a relevant cause and effect. Furthermore, as previously noted, international courts can also generate unexpected outcomes that represent certain social costs and or benefits. Such costs and benefits affect the overall evaluation of the efficiency of international courts among the unexpected negative outcomes, one may identify both direct outcomes, such as jurisdictional conflicts between different international courts, and indirect outcomes, such as the possible derailment of peace processes as a result of the refusal of international criminal courts to respect national amnesties. In this regard, one should also acknowledge the indirect costs associated with paths not taken, if one can establish that the creation and operation of international courts is stymied the pursuit of other, more promising international efforts, for example, if the creation of an international criminal court had served as a substitute for humanitarian intervention that could have prevented more crimes from occurring, then the establishment of, some of such courts may have actually generated a net cost. At the same time, one should also look at the unexpected direct and indirect benefits generated by the operation of international courts. Some direct outcomes such as national capacity building through the transfer of expertise from international courts to national courts 
and the development of any historical records of events may not have been part of the official or even the operative goals of international courts, they could therefore be viewed as unintended benefits. Furthermore, some indirect beneficial outcomes may also be identified. The establishment of some international courts has inspired the subsequent creation of similar additional courts. For example, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia and Rwanda were an underlying influence on the establishment of the ICC. Furthermore, the fact that court adjudication raises the international profile of certain problems, such as WTO jurisprudence attracting attention to the relationship between trade and the environment, which thereby encourages international cooperation to resolve these problems, may be viewed as an unexpected benefit that could compensate for certain suboptimal features in the operation of the reviewed court. All of these difficulties in measuring actual outcomes, intended or unintended, increase the, relevi the relative importance of structural indicators, sometimes referred to in the literature as inputs, and process indicators in the process of evaluating judicial effectiveness. Structure indicators may help by way of reverse engineering in evaluating the capacity of international courts to meet their goals. They may also help in explaining some of the perceived discrepancies between outcomes and goals. While every court is likely to feature a different list of structural indicators, it may be possible to identify and classify some indicators that can reasonably be expected to be found in all or almost all international courts. Such structural attributes may explain in part the choice of courts as the vehicles selected by the mandate providers for the attainment of the specific goals they have identified. For example, legal powers, such as the scope of jurisdiction, ancillary powers including in the field of fact-finding, right of access to the court, number of parties to constitutive instruments, and the existence of an enforcement machinery are all part of the structure. Uh, so, are the, so is the personal capacity uh, featured by the court, namely the number of the judges and the actual and perceived quality of the court's personnel, the resources uh, available to the court, such as budget and the nature of the court's facilities. Uh, issues of structural independence also come into play, namely the degree in which conditions are in place for the independence of the courts and its members from other actors and, state, uh, and stakeholders. The court's usage potential namely the conditions that may underlie uh, expectations for actual usage, such as the propensity of member states to litigate the relevance of the problem area addressed by the court, and finally, uh, reputation, the perception of the court's independence, impartiality, legitimacy, and effectiveness. All of these uh, are important uh, structural fa uh, factors. One additional factor which may be mentioned in this list is the possibility of transforming judicial structures or procedures in response to changing needs of circumstances, since the ease with, the, with which these changes can be made may affect the court's ability to attain its goals. Finally, a more complete picture of the structural attributes of international courts would emerge after exploring the legal, institutional, political, economic, ideological, and cultural environment in which such courts operate as it appears that the de jure and de facto powers of the court derive to a large extent from these background circumstances. The differences, for example, between the records of achievements of courts in Europe as, as compa compared to those outside Europe may appertain as much to the pro-rule of law climate found in Europe as to any intrinsic factor related to the structure of the relevant courts. Moving on from structure to process, uh, like structural indicators, examination of the processes employed by international courts may also help us in both understanding court effectiveness 
and explaining ineffectiveness and inefficiencies. By assessing the quantity and quality of the effort invested in operating international courts, one may predict the degrees in which some of their goals will be attained and, as noted with regard to structure, explain why a judicial process was deemed appropriate by the mandate providers. For example, the pace at which proceedings takes, take place before the court may uh, predict to some extent its ability to resolve in a given time frame a large number of disputes, provide normative guidance on a variety of issues, and promote enforcement, namely gener generate relevant outcomes. Likewise, assessing adherence to some standards of due process can further contribute to a better understanding of a court's legitimacy in the eyes of certain target audiences and ultimately to predict the impact of its decisions on relevant constituencies. Some of the relevant social sciences literature mentions three main categories for evaluating the quality of the judicial process. Procedural justice, interpersonal justice, and informational justice. Although such literature focuses on justice and not on effectiveness, the criteria it identifies may serve as a useful starting point for analyzing the quality of judicial procedures for effectiveness purposes as well. Procedural justice criteria are concerned with evaluation of the court's procedures in light of objective performance standards, for example, actual usage rates, participation of all the relevant stakeholders in the process, duration of the proceedings, their costs, consistency, consistency in the application of procedural rules, namely that similar cases will be treated alike, compliance monitoring and actual judicial independence, namely lack of interference in the court's work. Interpersonal justice criteria evaluate the way in which participants in the process are treated fairly, uh, in a respectful manner, etc. Finally, informational justice refers to the transparency of the process and invites an, of, an assessment of the quality of the court's reasoning. Whereas some of the aforementioned indicators, such as cost or duration, can be determined with relative ease, other less tangible indicators may have to be assessed in the lights of their perceived pr propriety in the eyes of the parties and other stakeholders. The goal-based effectiveness model described above offers tools for conducting institution-specific and goal-specific effectiveness studies. For example, one may conduct research on whether the ICC is effectively contributing to the fight against impunity, whether the WTO dispute settlement helps to maintain a balance of rights and interests between the member states, and whether the European Court of Human Rights has effectively facilitated observance by Council of Europe member states of the human rights standards specified in the European Convention on Human Rights. Such research projects would involve as a core minimum goal identification, outcome assessment, and causation delineation. A more comprehensive approach will also refer to structural and procedural indicators in order to better gauge outcomes and to diagnose root causes for underperformance, and will consider the cost, effectiveness, and efficiency aspects of specific goal attainment strategies. An even more ambitious research program could seek to explore the overall effectiveness of one particular international court in light of the variety of goals it is expected to attain. While such an analysis is unlikely to result in any useful answer to the question whether that specific court is on the whole effective, it may highlight areas of relative effectiveness, namely that some goals which the court appears to better attain than other goals, and expose the trade-offs which the court engages in throughout its operation between competing goals. To the extent that such an analysis is time-sensitive, it can also help us to better understand how courts adapt to changing environments 
as well as to the changing expectations of its mandate providers. But even if one were not to engage in extensive empirical work on international courts' performance, the goal-based approach introduced hereby provides us with new and exciting analytical tools to describe and understand key aspects of international adjudication relating to judicial structures, procedures, and outcome from either a general perspective or the perspective of a specific court. For example, it highlights, this approach highlights that from a goal attainment point of view, compliance with international court decisions is almost a meaningless effectiveness indicator unless we know something about the contribution of the decisions in question to attaining the court's goals. Thus, partial compliance with the, de with the decision that paves the way towards important normative or institutional reforms may be more effective than full compliance with a technical decision, which changes little uh, uh, with the state of the world. In the same manner, a goal-based approach can help us to develop, for example, a richer understanding of the concept of judicial effective uh, independence. While having an independent image is an important component of a court's ability to be regarded as legitimate and to confer legitimacy upon international norms and institutions, failure to accommodate party preferences may result in non-compliance with court judgments and non-resolution of disputes. Hence, too much independence from that point of view, like too little independence, may be a challenge for, the, uh, for goal attainment. In sum, measuring the effectiveness of international courts is a serious challenge, arguably a more serious challenge than some of the existing international law literature has so far acknowledged. It requires a thorough analysis of the different goals of international courts and the development of measurable criteria and indicators supplemented by quantitative analysis. In addition, future research ought to measure and evaluate where possible the intended and unintended outcomes of international courts, their structures and processes. Such an endeavor may, if, su if successful, provide important insights on the effectiveness, cost-effectiveness and efficiency of international courts. It may also serve as the basis for reform proposals, either of judicial structures, for example, increasing on decreasing or decreasing the jurisdictional powers of the court or the budgets, process, introduction, for instance, of timelines, increasing or decreasing the roles uh, of uh, third parties, etc., and ultimately a change in outcomes. In contradistinction to part of the existing international literature, I posit in light of the social sciences literature that the study of court effectiveness should be based on the specific goals set for each and every court, either the goals set, set by its mandate providers, including some of the goals on which I have focused here, or other sets of goals set by other stakeholders, including the judicial institution itself. Still, as some courts are modeled after one another, it may be possible and useful to perform some comparisons between courts in order to improve our understanding, understanding of them. For example, one can compare the work of the ICTY to, the, to that of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and the work of the European Court of Justice to that of the EFTA court. Moreover, some aspects of the operation of international courts are modeled after domestic courts and invite comparisons in, that, in this regard as well. Comparisons may also be helpful for measuring fluctuations in the effectiveness of a single institution over time. Beyond evaluating actual effectiveness, the goal-based approach introduces, introduced here provides us with new analytical tools to understand how international courts operate, and in particular to assess the contribution of key concepts relating to the structure, process, and outcome. For example, judicial independence, judgment compliance, and judicial legitimacy to their effectiveness. 
here too, the general analytical frameworks need to be adapted to the specific tasks and context of each judicial institution. Thus, assertions of direct correlation between effectiveness and independence or compliance and even legitimacy in the eyes of certain constituencies should be taken with a grain of salt. Thank you.